This is Brett Hayworth, and welcome to What's the Frequency, our half-hour show that follows the exchange on Siouxland Public Media. Together, the two shows give you a variety of important information on key issues that impact our lives. In this episode, we highlight the anniversary of a big that proved to greatly impact the direction of popular music and also spurred the growth of youth culture in a way that veered away from what was happening in the more buttoned-down 1950s. Our topic today is the arrival 60 years ago this month of the Beatles in America. One benchmark is their appearance on the popular Ed Sullivan show on February 9, 1964, and there was an immediate reaction to the group that contains Paul McCartney, John Lennon, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. So much changed for the world after that, with the Beatles coming back for a second Sullivan show a week later, then doing press appearances, and a concert tour of America. The subtitle of a 2016 great book, Dreaming the Beatles, was The Love Story of One Band in the Whole World, and while, of course, not everyone enjoyed the Beatles and everything they did before breaking up in 1970, there's a lot of truth to the fact that a lot of people in the world love the band. One way to quantify that is with all kinds of single and album sales records that they had. With such record charting superlatives is that they had 64 singles on the top 40, 20 of those 64 hit number one, plus the insane stat of having five songs in the top 40 in one week in April 1964, which shows how quick their domination was 60 years ago. Joining me today on What's the Frequency are Siouxlanders Eddie Dunn, Jessica Hammond, and Austin Curtis, who range in age and how long they have known the band. And to begin with, let's just start there. Let's, um, let's go with you, Eddie. When did you first hear them? What did, how old were you? And what did you think in the moment as, as you first heard them? I first heard of them in uh, early, uh, early in their 64 year, just before their TV appearance. Okay. I was a particularly nerdy little preteen, and I had a. Th uh, my sister was three years older than me, and she loved them right out of the shoots, just just immediately. So I was determined at first to hate them, because she loved them. <laughs> but then I caught them on on Ed Sullivan, and I instantly became a devotee, <laughs> just oh. that fast. Okay, so I was where pretty were, fickle. Where, where are you from originally? Like where were you? Here watching? in South Dakota. You're in, so you're in here in South Dakota watching them at your family's my, home. My family's home, yes. And they they were just such a knockout. And my there was my sister grooving on them, and and it didn't stop me. I still loved them. In fact, I ended up loving them longer than she did. Okay, Austin, how about you? What was your What was your entry? So, I had went and grown up with my grandparents. I first started listening to them from my grandfather who was like a, a huge Beatle fan and devotee. And like he had a CD player uh, in his truck and he, he had every single, beat, every single Beatles song on a CD and he would just store them in the middle console mm -hmm. and then he would pull it up and just take one out and just play it all the time. <laughs> so I remember like specific songs like every once in a while that like would just pop out to me and <laughs> I thought were great. And from that point on, like, I guess I kind of took it over and became more of a Beatles fan than he did, or that he was. <laughs> and then he gave me probably like two feet thick of records to play for a record player or, or vinyl. <laughs> nice grandfather. <laughs> okay, Jessica. Well, I got into the Beatles when I was around 13 years old because I started learning how to play guitar. And actually, the intro to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is like one of the first riffs I ever learned how to play. Probably like the first five riffs I ever learned. Um, but yeah, around that time when I started learning how to play guitar, I was like, 
uh, not aware of a lot of like the classic rock stuff. Like my dad was really into Pink Floyd, but um, I just like of my own volition was like, I think I should probably like look into this stuff. I just wanted to learn more about guitar. I was like obsessed in middle school, but yeah. So ever since then, uh, I've just been listening to the Beatles a lot. There's quite a few albums that I really love and like still listen to a lot. And this seems like a very basic question, but why do you like the Beatles? What do they possess that makes you feel the way that you do about them? And let's go, Jessica, back to you then. Well, I think it says a lot when you can like listen to an album and then like 15 years later still be listening to that same album and like it. And I feel like that's a lot of like these timeless hits that these legendary rock bands wrote, you know, like you can still listen to them and they're just as good. And I'm not like as big of a fan of like the early Beatles stuff, but I think it's really cool that they like just blaze this trail of like weird trippy revolutionary like goofy stuff austin it's i mean it started out with me just listening to it when i was young so it was like imprinted me on me like already um but when i started getting like into music and like actually like knowing things about music i think it's just like it's a wide variety of music that they incorporate to where like there's there's styles all over the place uh and like all over their albums and stuff like that but like it's it's all sounds like the beatles like <laughs> they have like all these different styles that they kind of play in but it all sounds like the beatles and like it's a real testament to where you can play they have like what 480 songs and like I'll, like a lot of them you could just like hear instantly and like recognize and like there's parts of it that are like as far as i'm aware i mean you might not like a certain beatles song but I mean, majority of them you can just like enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't. Know, I feel like their complexity and their style and like like they're cutting like further time. They're cutting edge like te- like tech and their art form is just like it's really impressive. Yeah, Eddie, how would you answer that? Well, there have been a world full of great bands and great musicians, great music, great popular music in our lifetimes. But the thing about the Beatles that always struck me was they were they were like a magic combination of all the most important qualities. Most of the songs that they wrote as the Beatles just had a certain charm to them that was very memorable on first hearing. They made a lot of converts just based on the first time people heard them. And it stuck, it stuck through their lives. It's just incredible how they did that. I mean, you know, there's there's great music, there's great songs that came from all quarters, but the Beatles just kind of owned the market, the the pop market, right from the get-go. And, they, yeah, they did change styles, and they had uh, capacity to play any kind of music, but they covered it all. That's something that really nobody else could do, and I'm not sure anybody else has done it ever since either. I have. I want to. This would be for Austin and, and you, Jessica. Why do you think younger generations keep coming to them? So, um, there's been probably three generations, maybe a four generations now that that have come to like the Beatles. Why well, would you think that would be? I guess for me, like something I like to do is like when I listen to music, uh, you could just go on YouTube and look up like this music reaction and stuff like that, and like listen to like those reaction, those guys reacting to the music. 
and like type in any Beatles song in reaction and then listen to the guys or, or like whatever they say afterwards they're always like impressed and it's like it's timeless to where like the, the music style and whatnot is just like something that everybody enjoys and like it doesn't matter if you're old or young or it's just good music <laughs> and before before you answer jessica i i want to interject first of all i should have said this earlier but i'm a huge beetle fan for the people listening to, to this episode of what's a frequency so my goal has been to stay out of the way and let you guys answer questions and not just gush myself but i do want to interject that my the one way my life has changed since the pandemic is i discovered on youtube those music reaction channels and i watched them i can be in there 60 to 90 minutes per day and I love watching people watch the Beatles for the first time as they say it. And they're hearing Love Me Do or Strawberry Fields Forever, whatever it is. But just seeing their faces react, what they say about it. It's like hearing the songs fresh for me in a new way through, through somebody else's going through that. Jessica, why do you think younger generations? Well, for me, I guess it always comes back to like when I was learning how to play guitar. Like, and I think maybe a lot of musicians out there can relate. Because I'm in no like playing all different kinds of music and I really like like heavy metal and stuff like that but what's fascinating to me is kind of the evolution from rock and roll to heavy metal and like um I took this class in high school called the history of American popular music and I've taken like music appreciation classes but I'm it, it fascinates me how you can go from like the Beatles to like Black Sabbath to like Cannibal Corpse you know like there's an evolution there and like the Beatles had to walk so Cannibal Corpse could run, you know? Yeah, I just think that the what the Beatles did was really important to the evolution of rock and roll and it's timeless. And as far as like pop music goes, the, the chord progressions and stuff that the Beatles were using is the same stuff that new pop musicians are using. It's the same, you know, um, same formula. So it's like this formula is kind of timeless, but the music still holds up. I'm speaking here on What's the Frequency on the arrival of the Beatles in America 60 years ago this month with our guests Eddie Dunn, Austin Curtis, and Jessica Hammond. The Beatles were basically in their young 20s when they burst onto the scene and roughly 30 when they broke up in 1970. Of course, the original fans in big part initially were the young girls, but that quickly changed. There was a world of pop music uh, journalism that kind of grew up around them, new publications where they would where you would review an album and say whether it's quality or not quality, and all kinds of magazines that came along in that vein. They got fantastic reviews for their albums. They were also notable for hairstyles, their clothes, the topics that they addressed in songs. Of all those cultural type of side effects, impacts, what are you most interested in, and what do you find to be most notable of those? Let's start with you, Eddie. Well, the music part of it, the rest of it never really struck me that much. I just didn't care that much about it. But each new song that I heard of theirs was a monumental thing. Really, much of my early life was designed around anticipating their next record release. It was that important to me. And it was that way for that generation. I have no doubt of it. I mean, there were always bands around, you know, basement bomber bands. But somehow... The Beatles defined that whole trade, and uh, the world just kind of coagulated around their sound and what they were doing, which is kind of ironic when you think that Beatles songs have never been the easiest songs to cover, and very few bands ever did it successfully. But it was just 
It was just so important. It was just a cultural event in my life every time a new record came out. While we're talking about kind of cultural impact and society and such, did you find the Beatles to be political? And if so, in what way were they political? They got a little political in their middle period. Like uh, there were several songs. Dr. Robert always struck me as, you know, kind of a commentary. But there were others that did. Taxman, obviously. And several other tunes. Yeah, they were they were political. They were a lot more political than other pop bands that I can think of of that time. Jessica, what um, your opinion on their impact on the culture, youth culture? Um, you know, there was a hippie movement. You know, people were it kind of grew with the 1960s of college kids speaking on campuses to issues that were important. So there was a Vietnam War going on. What if that was important to you, or did you find notable? Well, okay, I guess without having, like, been around for all that stuff and looking back, all I can do is kind of, like, um, assume things. But, like, like you were saying, um, they, they kind of had, like, all of the different pieces that made it work together. But I think it kind of had to be, like, a group of straight white dudes to do this stuff and, like, insert these kind of, like, ideas into the culture, writing music about um, issues they care about and stuff like that, like... Uh, if somebody else from a different community or like a group of women or like so, like another group back then wouldn't have been able to do what they did. So like I give them credit for like being the ones to kind of like start opening stuff up in that way for like other kinds of people to be able to make such a cultural impact like they did. I think that's a really good point. Really good. They had the power and nobody else did. And they used it. Mm -hmm. And they kind of like seemed to ease into it too. You know, they were doing a lot of like pop music that no one, no one would be offended by at first. And then they got really, or like really popular. And so then they used their platform to talk about the stuff they care about. And I think that's really cool. And I think that paved the way for other people to do the same. Before I get to your question, Austin, I'm reminded of the song Revolution, which they did two versions. They did the album version for the White Album and then the single version. And there's the opening line is, if you're talking about a revolution, don't you know you can count me out? Then another version they have, don't you know you can count me in? So people found that very interesting on which, where, where, do, where are the Beatles on, on wanting a revolution? Austin, thoughts on, on their cultural impact, youth culture and, and that? I guess for me, like a big cultural impact was like the sp like specifically in the music industry because I like to get into like the technical aspects and stuff like that yeah like their ability to or like them paving the way for things like multi-track and like stereo and whatnot was like like cutting edge like that was like the next Beatles album was like the benchmark for what everybody else had to d had to meet their standards for and it was like if you look throughout their years like you could just like it's kind of like representative of like <laughs> like like a fine wine aging very nicely or like you can like tell that like they, they build up on it like on their previous albums or whatnot and like they start getting more like bombastic and experimentate or experimentative but like yet their music still like hits everybody in all these ways and that like they're still pushing boundaries but they're still within the realm of like like a large audience of people will still enjoy the music. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask this question later, but since you're here now, I want to get to it now. Um, all three of you are musicians, and from a musician's point of reference, 
can you point to like a guitar or drums or a produ- production aspect of a of Beatles music that really speaks to you? Can you is there an example of a portion of a song where you were like, I can't believe that lick or that drum fill or or whatever? Well, I have that feeling about most of their songs. Okay, so I'm not sure I'm the one to ask. I mean, they combined all the elements, as I as I said earlier, and the folks here have said. It wasn't just one aspect of their music. They they brought it all together. And one aspect in particular that I always thought was probably more key than any other single element, when you get beyond just the structure, the melody of each song, the actual way it was built, the thing that really sent it over the edge was their singing. They were incredible singers. And that wasn't common in pop bands then at all. I mean, there were the three when they when they sang as three, John, Paul, and George. Ringo sang two, but he hardly ever harmonized with them. So, but the three of them, the harmonies they came up with, were just transcendent, and and made a good song into a great song. <laughs> that makes me think of like uh, in my life, like in, on Rubber Soul, where the majority of the song, there's a few like tambourine hits and stuff like that for like the pre-chorus and, and whatnot. But for the majority of the song, it's just Ringo, like on a, on his drum set, playing like that beat for me, or like that drum beat is like one of my favorites ever. It's it's so like stripped down, but like if you ever actually tried to play that, it's actually very difficult to play. It would help to be a left-hander playing a right-hand Yes, set. yeah. <laughs> yes, I was recently reminded of that. I had forgotten that. A left-hander <laughs> playing on a right-handed kit. Good mm-hmm. point, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Austin. And then like... The song is just like them harmonizing like their uh, their chords and stuff like that, which is really it's really cool. It's along with like the message that they're giving of like, you know, like living life and stuff like that. And there's sad moments of good moments where it's like a really like kind of stripped down. But like it's still it's still to me, it's like a master class of like uh, knowing knowing what to put where <clears throat> where it's like you don't need all, all these things everywhere. Um and I guess another option where there is a lot of things everywhere is like a day in the life where <laughs> they start out like real like legato uh, with John who does, has a great voice for the like reverb and decay that, that they put on but then you have like it starts getting a little dissonant like in the middle and then you have like that, those big crashes like in the middle and the, at the end where it's just like big and bombastic like that's one of my favorite songs to listen to because i'm trying to like wrap my head around like what what was their thought process and like is there like meaning behind like what they're saying and like what this means and stuff like that yeah jessica the musician question of you know aspects of their drums or you know guitars whatever that just kind of blow your mind and are seem very notable to you well one thing that i that comes to mind pretty quick when I think about the Beatles is how much I love Abbey Road, but specifically the backside of Abbey Road where all of the songs just flow into each other perfectly. And I love that. And as a musician, I think about songwriting and, um, you know, how it was back then compared to now, because the way that we deliver music to people is different now. Um, where back when they were recording music on vinyl, you know, you had to arrange your album in such a way where the first the first side made sense and the second side made sense. And it was more of a, you know, like a 
intentional puzzle you had to put together whereas now a lot of artists are just releasing singles or like eps so i don't um and I, people are releasing albums still and i'm sure people are doing this but i just think it's really cool to think back on the way that they arranged an album based on the way that the music was being delivered on vinyl and i'm speaking here on what's the frequency on the arrival of the beatles in america six years ago this month with our guests austin curtis eddie dunn and jessica hammond the Beatles didn't just sing love songs that were two minutes in length, which is what they were doing at the beginning. They stretched the boundaries in terms of lyrical content, subject matter, sonically, new instruments, as, as you guys have kind of talked. What era of the Beatles do you prefer? Is there a Beatles era that you don't care for? Let's go with you, Jessica, first. Um, well, I don't really know any specific years or anything, um, but I, I mostly like their later albums. Like, I really love... Um, Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper and Rev or, uh, Revolver. I don't really care too much for their like pop, early pop music. Austin? Um, well, yeah, now that I've gotten a little bit like more mature um, and grown up, um, I, I feel like basically like Rubber Soul on up for me is like the peak Beatles. Um, I really like Let It Be, especially like the new documentary that came out. I really shed a lot of light on it. I feel like I have like a new appreciation for the Let It Be album. Like Revolver is <laughs> classic, iconic, um, like maybe like their, uh, the White album and stuff like that. Um, Rubber, Rubber Soul is one of my favorites. <laughs> Eddie? It seems like the surveys done of this usually reveal Revolver and Rubber Soul maybe Sgt. Pepper's, as their high point musically. And I pretty much agree with that. I, I mean, I loved all their stuff, so it's hard for me to differentiate. But I will say that an album of theirs that didn't get much notice and has never figured very highly in the, in the pantheon of Beatles music was Beatles 65, which might have been only released in this country. I'm not even sure it was released in... Right. England. Right. It was but a, there were some the tunes US. on there that I just dug that never got any notoriety at all. They certainly never hit the top of the pops or anything like that. I just loved them. That was a, a key period in my life for falling in love with music, and that album happened to be there. So that's my personal favorite. Sure. And that's a gift, right, at, for that stage of your life, to oh, have yeah. that. Yeah, Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, one way that the Beatles were different than or groundbreaking from other groups was that they wrote their own material, which was pretty rare when they started doing that in the early 60s, and that all four of them contributed. Early on, it was heavily Lennon and McCartney, but then Harrison came on as time went on, and then Ringo here and there, too. Do you have a favorite Beatle, and why? And how much do their personalities factor in top of, uh, on top of musicianship And as you pinpoint who your favorite Beatle is? And Austin, let's go with you first. Growing up, Paul, I think Paul McCartney was always like my favorite. I think it's because I really liked his like solo career after the Beatles as well. I feel like he had a really successful, like a really good solo career. But I feel like maybe like an underrated is like George Harrison. I feel like his like his solo career after that as well was like really really good. And um, there's a lot there's a lot of aspects of like the Beatles and stuff like that to where they had a lot more like complexity than I think a lot of people realized at that point. Do you have a favorite Beatle? I don't. Yeah. I just love them all. And I think that their magic was produced together. They were they were greater than the sum of their parts. 
So I don't, I don't hold them apart from one another. Mm-hmm. It was what they did together that mattered. Jessica. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the, the chemistry of any band is, you know, like the, the sum of its parts or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts or whatever. So I agree with that. And I think George is my favorite Beatle because I like his songs, but also I want to bring up the idea of like separating the art from the artist sometimes, because we know like John Lennon, for example, uh, was like involved in domestic violence and stuff like that and it's like how do you like continue being able to appreciate the art that they made and the cultural impact that they have despite the stuff that these people as people did that uh i don't agree with as outside baggage so to speak Mm -hmm. yeah i had the discussion with my daughter who is a big beatles fan and she has the same exact conflicted view of john lennon and and i i've told her that I can separate that and keep it on the music, and some, and I understand for people that can't. It's, you know, that's certainly people have different opinions on that. You know, there's a song that embodies that, a Beatles song. I'm sure we all know it. Run for your life, on Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. Lennon always professed to hate that song. In fact, I think several times he said it was his least favorite song he ever wrote, and yet he wrote it. I mean, it's like there was a dark John and a yeah. a light John. I, I <laughs> will say at war with each other. I will say since the Me Too movement that I've heard that I I didn't I did, honestly didn't hear that song for what it was for all those years. But now then I saw it in a whole new light. Yes, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's I feel like pretty dicey. <laughs> in the Beatles, John was a little bit <clears throat> like darker and stuff with his writing than I would say some of the other ones. Um, you can definitely tell when John had like a lot of influence and in like the lyrics and stuff like that in a Beatles song. Yeah. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we're getting toward the end of our time and I want to make sure that I bring up a new element. We're not just talking about 60 years ago. Um, we have a new song that the Beatles dropped in November, uh, three months ago. Um, <clears throat> which of you have heard of the remade song now and then? And do one of you want to tell us the story of how that came together? If you know that? Well, John back in the day wrote a bunch of demo scripts or, or demo songs um, on a tape recorder and after he had died I think sometime in like the late 90s um, the Beatles had gotten back together and were going to take some of John's old uh, like recordings and then master them to make into songs and I believe they had three songs they were going to do and they, they managed to get two done but with a song Now and Then he recorded the vocals and the piano on one track they just didn't have the technology at that point to separate the vocals and the piano because uh, if they turned it up, it would make the vocals like muddy with the piano in there as well. 20 years later, after Paul had saw had seen the, uh, the Let It Be documentary that they came out with, where they came out with like an AI that could separate their uh, voices from the instruments and stuff like that. Um, but they managed to be able to have something to separate that out and they managed to separate the tracks out and then they took some of George Harrison's old guitar tracks that he tried to play originally like a slide guitar style and then put that in there as well right so John wrote it in about 1980 shortly before he died in 1995 was when they they got together for those three songs two mm-hmm. of them came together one couldn't didn't couldn't until AI and now in November through the magic of technology we all have that it's a great song <clears throat> they did it it's a, it's a true Beatles song so glad they did. I, I don't know why anybody would have ever questioned that. 
Okay, and to wrap up, let's. I want to do a, a rapid fire lightning round. Favorite Beatles love song? Man, I prefer their breakup songs, but I think my favorite love song is Oh Darling. Maybe like Love Me Do. <laughs> and I love her. Favorite kind of deep song? Austin. Probably like In My Life. Eddie. Let It Be, probably. Mm. We'll move on to favorite weird song. Eddie. Revolution number nine. Uh, Jessica. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Austin. I think mine... I guess I was considered like a weird song, but like Yellow Submarine. <laughs> okay. And that's a wrap for this edition of What's the Frequency? Many thanks to our guests, Sioux City College student and musician Austin Curtis, artist and musician Jessica Hammond, and college professor and musician Eddie Dunn for speaking on the arrival of the Beatles in America 60 years ago this month, plus what that has meant in the decades since for music, popular culture, and in other ways. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next week. Airing this afternoon on Siouxland Public Media will be The World at 3 p.m., followed by All Things Considered. For Siouxland Public Media News, I'm Brett Hayworth.